Goldie and Bendy. Hello, it's the podcast they could not stop. Waldy and Bendy's Adventures in Art. And what a good thing it is that they didn't stop us, because today is Valentine's Day, and this whole podcast is devoted to love. I'm Valdemar Nuschak, art critic of the Sunday Times, and people who like me call me Waldy. But in truth, I'm a bit of a stranger to love. For me, love's just something you read about in books. But my co-host on this podcast, Beddor Grosvenor, well, he's known throughout the art world as the gallant of the galleries, the Casanova of the classics. What this man doesn't know about love hasn't been invented yet. Bendy, share your secrets. How do you do it? What's it like being you? Well, Waldy, I'm so overwhelmed with love for you at the moment. That's what it's like being me. I'm looking at the screen and little pooty are flying around your head. I'm, I'm, I miss you. I wish I could reach out and give you a kiss. But, but really, when it comes to these matters of romance, I am, I'm the Norman wisdom to your Casanova. <laughs> well, that's not true. And I know it's not true because I've been watching you this week on Britain's Lost Masterpieces. And I mean, it's no wonder that everybody's in love with you. It was a fantastic programme, really interesting, um, about this Parmigianino that you found, or which turned out to be something else, but still something pretty good, right? Uh, very kind of you, Rathi. Um Actually, it was a programme um, all about me being wrong and finally, finally being a little bit right in the end. But it was, you know, it's good to be on telly saying you get things wrong. Well, you didn't get it wrong. I mean, you didn't get it wrong. I've never been wrong on telly, but you've, you you definitely didn't this time. I mean, and what was interesting is we've done mannerism, haven't we, on this podcast before? And there you were talking about mannerism, this Parmigianino that um, you found somewhere up near Manchester, or you thought it was a Parmigianino, but it turned out to be something else. Um, it, it was just really interesting that the process of discovery, you know, which you always do so well in those programmes. I'll tell you what, can I ask you one question? You know, when you take a picture to that chap who does all the restoration, um, you always go to the same guy, don't you? Simon uh, Gillespie, yes. Simon Gillespie, that's it, Simon Gillespie. How long does he, how long does he take doing that? So in between the time when you give it to him and the time he hands you back the results, what are we talking about? Days, weeks, months? Oh, it depends entirely on the picture. In that one, I think, was probably... Um maybe four months of quite a slow process that one yeah so that must be quite intricate as well building that into the the filming schedule as well you've got four months in between yeah no it's 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 pretty much sort of as is i mean that's why in that program we were able to you know be wrong about farm janino and eventually get to something because it's a live investigation when we start we don't really know where we're going and sometimes people think oh you only show the episodes where you get the you get the discovery right and you've got somewhere on the shelf as a back catalogue of mistakes where i'm completely wrong but um there isn't you know what tv is like you once mm. you start you just have to keep going it was very interesting and i have to say that i don't know a lot about salviati who uh, i don't think it's giving away too much to say that was what the picture ended up as but um i will look out and, and try and find out more very interesting thank you so much for that have you got more of these coming up the finding lost masterpieces um there's one we had to stop uh, for various covid reasons so there is one on the shelf about half finished about sir joshua reynolds but um hopefully we'll be get around to finishing that soon well, I'll have my nose glued to the telly as always. Uh, so that's you on the subject of lost masterpieces. You're brilliant at that. We're going to move on to to you on the subject of something even deeper. Uh, you on the subject that you know everything about. You on the subject 
of love um, because this is the audio and Benny Valentine's Day special. So there's lots of stuff about love coming up, but also in the podcast, we've got the results of our major investigation into the worst film about an artist ever made. And frankly, Bendy, it's been hell. I mean, looking through all these films, oh, thank God it's over. And, and today we finally get to announce the result. So and that's coming up as well. And I'm sure you don't need me to remind you that all the pictures we talk about, everything we deal with is illustrated and annotated on the podcast pages of zczfilms.com. And let me tell you that in particular, I think you'll find the next batch of pictures we're talking about really worth seeing. It started with a kiss. Never thought it would come to this. Oh, Bendor, I mean, you're the Barry White of uh, of art history. Um, Bendy, none of us ever thought it would come to this. Me and you discussing love in art. I mean, how ridiculous is that? We're probably the two least qualified people in the entire art world, or at least I am. Where did you get this stupid idea to do this? Well, it's a Valentine's Day special, Wally, and there are a few people I love more in this world than you. Uh, we can't reach out and kiss each other through the screen at the moment due to the lockdown, so we have to uh, vicariously kiss each other through the best kiss paintings in art. Well, originally it was meant to be just about kissing, right? Because, I mean, there are so many pictures and sculptures actually called The Kiss. But you, Bendy, you weren't satisfied with that. I mean, you wanted to expand it into wider matters of love. And since I bow to you in all things romantic, so that's what we're doing here. So we're enjoying love in art in its myriad forms. So yes, I mean, we picked our favorite artworks involving kissing, or in your case, a bit more than that. And you and I are going head to head, as it were, in a Waldy and Bendy battle of love. So that's three artworks, three rounds of kissing. Then what's your first one? Now, my first one, I'm going straight in with some of the hard stuff, because this is a painting by Theodore Jericho, who's a wonderful painter. He's he's one of those artists, a bit like Gainsborough, who who so many artists aspire to to be like, but no one can ever really actually paint like him. And what an extraordinary painter he was! This painting is called "The Three Lovers," and it's in the collection of the Getty Museum. And it was painted about eighteen seventeen and eighteen twenty, and it's Jericho's only known erotic painting. But my goodness, um, there's quite a lot going on here, isn't there, Aldi? So what we can see is uh, there are two women. One is lying recumbent, naked from the waist up. Uh, she's clearly exhausted because um, she's she's been hard at it. And uh, on the right of the picture is a fellow um, and another undressed woman who are about to embark, I think, on, on what is probably round two. Um, and, and they're depicted in a sort of booth and there's a curtain. So it, it may be a brothel or something. But but Jericho, of course, most people will probably know him from uh, that huge painting in the Louvre, the Raft of the Medusa. And he was he was fascinated by human anatomy and and the power of emotion. So this is the guy who used to do his studies from decapitated heads from the French Revolution. And, and he loved the gore of it all. So it's not a very romantic painting this Wildy. Um, there, there is kissing going on but you're the more sentimental type I've, I've gone for the hard stuff so this is my opening bid it, it's a slap around the face Bendo. I mean this is <laughs> there's stuff going on in here that I didn't know was possible to do um, it's a threesome isn't it a threesome but done in whatever it was 1819 or something I mean it, it is extraordinarily explicit I presume it was done for private pleasures yes that uh, 
I mean, it's it's one guy, two women. I mean, the, the woman on the left looks as if she's already had her um, uh, hour of joy. Um, and the other woman is being grasped as if she's about to begin her hour of joy. I think what, what's interesting is that, I mean, apart from the fact that it is so absurdly revealing, um, you know, you just... I don't know, you just don't like to think that they got up to this sort of stuff in the past. <laughs> I don't anyway. Um, but it, and it's it's no nonsense, isn't it? I mean, this is what Jericho did. I mean, pretty much every picture he painted, you get to get this sense that um, it's not viewing anything in, in life through any kind of gauze or net or veil. Mm. It's just showing it like it is. So it's very explicit. Um, I'm intrigued. But it looks, you say it's a brothel. I mean, it, it, the way it's presented, though, I mean, there's a curtain draped on the on the right and it's more like a theatre scene or something. It's as if you've turned up in the front row of a show when these curtains have been opened and there it suddenly is all going on. I've never been to one of those shows, Wilde. Perhaps you have. I don't know from experience. <laughs> no, 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 no. I've read about them in books. It, it's, it's an extraordinary picture I, I didn't know it um I, it must have been painted pretty much the same time right as the raft of the medusa so that's what eight, 1819 to be honest bendor it, it shocked me that's the truth of it. it it shocked me um you're a man of the world i'm, I'm an innocent i've come away from my um exposure to this particular jericho feeling uh, uh i don't know that i've maybe i've led a very innocent life that's the truth of it well, uh, what I like about it is it's a world away from the similar subject matter painted by the likes of Fragonard and Boucher in the years before. All that frippery and softness and unreality. And Jericho's just uh, painted it as it is. But um, what have you got? What's your what's your opening bid in the most uh, kissy picture? Well, I've gone for what is, in fact, a brothel scene. But I think in my case, you may not know it to be that. It's certainly not immediately obvious. It's by the great uh, Toulouse-Lautrec, Henri de Toulouse-Lautrec, who did live in a brothel for a while uh, because not because he was always as it were taking advantage of the other clientele but because he, he felt at home there um he always used to write that he in a brothel he didn't feel like an outsider um he felt as if everybody sort of understood him better and so he got to know the girls really really well um they got to know him and he was the tame painter around the brothel in paris and um, at the time, lesbianism was something that was very much in the air. So you've got these paintings by, for example, Corbet, that are very explicit and titillatory. You know, they're, they're lesbianism, as we could probably even understand it today, as a rather coarse fa male fantasy of lesbianism, if you like. Uh, but Toulouse-Lautrec didn't see it that way. So he, he lived with these women and he saw that some of them were forming these rather beautiful, gentle, loving relationships. And so he painted this gorgeous picture, which is called The Bed. And it shows uh, two women, two ladies from the brothel, arms around each other and kissing each other in bed with the most beautiful tenderness. And it's, it's a picture full of empathy, full of romance, but also wonderfully ahead of its times in its sexual politics. And I always think that Toulouse-Lautrec is massively underrated. I mean, everybody thinks of him as a poster guy um, and because we all know that he was born with underdeveloped legs and things, so shortened body, he's kind of mocked. And in films, he's appeared as a person that gets laughed at. But he had a big heart, um, had a lot of empathy in him and, and a fantastic technique. I mean, really brilliant, fast hands. And I just love this picture. I mean, I think it's way ahead of its time. But above all, it's about love as a romantic feeling, sort of opposite of what you show me with your, with your sexy threesome. Um, so, yeah, I mean, Toulouse-Lautrec, The Bed from the 1890s. Gorgeous image, I think. Do you know, I, I didn't know any of that. 
when you sent me the photo of the picture, I thought, goodness me, that is a wonderfully tender uh, moment, a tender embrace between a man and a woman. I didn't actually clock that uh, there were two women here. And now that you tell me, of course, I, I can see it. Um, was Toulouse-Lautrec meaning it to be a little bit ambiguous in the subject matter? No, no, I think I mean, well, in this relationship, one of the women had shorter hair, I suppose, than okay. the other one. But I mean, he did, this is not his only picture of lesbian couples okay. in, okay. in the brothel. Um, he did a few, and this is, they're all blessed with this tender atmosphere, which is the wonderful thing about them, you know, this, yeah. this sense of a genuine intimacy. And, you know, there are so many brothel pictures in art, aren't there? And yet there are so few that treat the women as, as human beings, as, as people with souls and spirits and things. Um, I think you do have to be someone like Toulouse Lautrec, who's someone who's gone there not to find casual sex, but has gone there because they feel somehow that they can be at home in a place that is removed from everyday bourgeois power in his case to see it properly so yeah i'm glad you like it i, th I think it's a gawk it's a wonderful picture it's oh. in the musée d'orsay i love it it's really wonderful and, and i really i think it's i think it's going to be hard to beat and there's me just jumping to heterosexual conclusions um and i think that's uh, that's uh... go on what's your next one then what's the next heterosexual conclusion well actually i'm going in a, a slightly off piece now because uh, we just we started discussing the importance of kisses in art and i thought well is there a more important kiss in history, uh, certainly in uh, in Christian history, perhaps, uh, than the moment uh, Judas uh, comes upon Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane and marks him out for arrest by kissing him on the cheek? That is the, the identifying moment. So, so what an important kiss that is in in history. And I've chosen a painting, a brilliant painting of that scene by, yes, Sir Anthony Van Dyke. He painted this subject three times, and the picture I'm looking at is in Bristol Museum and Art Gallery. Uh, it's a huge mammoth canvas. And uh, Judas is uh, is there in a yellow robe, which is traditionally the, the colour of betrayal. That's why we say cowards are yellow. Um, and behind him, he's got a, a swirling mass of, of crowds who are, who are uh, intent on arresting uh, Christ. Um, but just to the right of Judas, at the moment he's being kissed, is Christ. And the reason I love this picture is that the contrast here between the stillness of Christ, who is expecting everything that's about to happen, and the, the hurly-burly behind him just makes the picture have such a spiritual magic about it. So um, that, that's, my, that's my second uh, kiss in art history. Mm. Yes, I mean, it's true. Um, there are plenty of people that have painted that uh, betrayal, the kiss of betrayal that uh, Judas plants on, on Jesus's forehead in the uh, in the garden. I, I know this picture. I've seen it. It's an interesting picture. In terms of the tenderness here, I, I think the, the thing to look out for is the hand. I remember thinking at the time that because you can see that Judas is holding Jesus's hand delicately as if that's like the first thing that they do is just as it were get his attention but also to get him on his side he gently grabs him by the hand before he betrays him it's a beautifully observed thing and I also like the crowd is is crazy going behind and as a guy holding a rope isn't there is about to lynch or or put it around Jesus's neck so there is this sense of violence um I suppose the thing I noticed about it, which is a little bit unsettling, I mean, all the Judases in art are guilty to some degree of are their displays of anti-Semitism. You know, Ju Judas is always presented as some kind of archetypal Jewish figure. It's in all these these Baroque pictures in which he appears. 
Um, and you can see it here. I mean, the only person with a bent nose in a typical caricature of what was considered to be Jewishness, sort of stuff David Baddiel's going on about in his new book. The only person here who was caricatured that way is Judas. So there is this underlying anti-Semitism that you get in so much Christian art, and particularly I found during the Baroque period. That makes me a little bit uncomfortable, but I do like the portrayal of Jesus very much. And, and again, he's quite unusual, isn't he? The face of Jesus it's been standardized in art in many cases. So he's got the long hair, he's got the beard, he's got the things that Jesus always has. But that leaves very little of the face to be inventive with, doesn't it? And most artists don't really pull it off. I mean, once you've got the hair and the beard in place, there's not a lot you can do with the nose and the forehead. And yet this particular Jesus by Van Dyck um, has a very specific look. And, and, I, and I remember when I saw this picture in the flesh, thinking, wow, he's really different. There's something that's difficult to describe, but it's, he's got a different personality, a different look to him to most Jesuses. And it's one that I personally found appealing and one that stands out, as it were, in the pantheon of Jesuses in art. Mm, glad you like it. That, for me, is one of why Van Dyck is such a wonderful artist. He never falls into that Rubensian trap of casting all his characters in a similar and repetitive way, and, and they're all quite believable. Now, I absolutely see what you mean about the depiction of Judas here, and that is unfortunate. Uh, what's interesting in the other in the other compositions of of this subject that Van Dyck painted, particularly the one in the Prado, we see uh, bottom left the scene where Saint Peter takes out his sword and starts fighting with some of the priests who've come to arrest Christ. Now, I'm actually really interested in the historical figure of Jesus. Uh, years ago, I, I looked into it quite closely. It's a very interesting moment in the Gospels. It's the only time when uh, Jesus's followers are revealed to have armed themselves and been violent. And there's a school of thought which says that in the Gospels, there are certain little glimpses of historical truth and that is one of them, which revealed that, of course, uh, Christ, when he was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, was not arrested by the, the Jewish priests, but, of course, the Roman occupiers, because Christ was essentially leading a rebellion against the Roman occupation, not against uh, the Jewish religion. And mm -hmm. so it's a moment where the truth of, his, of Jesus's life has been uh, twisted, of course, by the Catholic faith in order to, to make it easier for Christianity to spread amongst the Roman Empire, because, of course, they couldn't portray uh, the Romans as the people who arrested and killed Christ, but it had to be the others, and the others were the Jews. Yeah, indeed. Do you know where I always find it interesting to keep an eye out for these kind of things? And that's in Last Suppers. You know how many times the Last Supper has been painted, right? Judas is, is always at the Last Supper, because it's Jesus and his 12 disciples. So there's a fun game to be had in art called Spot the Judas, because they had to evolve a series of iconographic tricks um, to make it possible for the audience to recognize which one of these guys is going to betray Jesus for the 30 pieces of silver. And it's, he's Jewish. Um, the name Judas is, is not accidentally Judas, as it were. Mm -hmm. There's just various ways of doing it. And sometimes it's, you can see he's got a little money sack hidden behind his back. That's always a good one. Um, sometimes he's the only shadowy one, so you can't see him properly, whereas all the other disciples are really spotlit. Quite often he's sitting at the front with his back to you, whereas everybody else is facing you. So, uh, just these various ways. It's a good thing for art lovers to do when they go in and see a Last Supper is spot the Judas. And um, it's both interesting, but also rather informative. And it does usually reveal, I'm afraid, the depths of anti-Semitism that uh, were going on in, in art and particularly during the Baroque era. So that's that. But interestingly, my next picture 
could have been something similar. It could have been the same moment in the Garden of Gethsemane when Judas kisses Jesus to identify him to the Romans as uh, Jesus, the King of the Jews. Because Giotto, who's my man in this choice, did paint that in Padua in the Scrovengi Chapel. He did paint the same scene. And I thought about choosing it for pretty much the same reasons as you, because it's another kind of kiss. But I've gone for something in the same place, in the same chapel, but a scene a little bit earlier in the story, which is before the birth of Jesus. And there's this lovely fresco up there by Giotto of Jesus's grandparents. So if you know Joachim and Anne, St. Joachim and St. Anne were the grandparents of Jesus Christ. They were the parents of the Virgin Mary and she gave birth to Jesus, right? But I don't know if you know the story of Joachim and Anna, it's again been twisted to fulfill lots of Christian fantasies about the birth of Jesus and the whole idea of the Immaculate Conception and how people were born without the original sin, right? So Joachim and Anna have been married for quite a long time and they couldn't have any children. For some reason, they were not being blessed by the God. Uh, and they couldn't have children. So the Jewish elders in the temple, because you've got to have children if you're Jewish at the time, banished Joachim to the desert. So he goes to the desert for 40 days uh, and then comes back. And as he's coming back to Jerusalem, he's walking through the Golden Gate in Jerusalem. St. Anne comes out to meet him and greet him and tells him that she's pregnant because she's had this visitation from the guards and the Virgin Mary has been planted inside her and she's going to give birth to the Virgin Mary. So what Giotto has painted here is the moment when Joachim meets St. Anne and she kisses him with this wonderful tenderness on the side of the face um, and tells him that he's going to be a dad after all. Even though they've had to wait so long, he's going to be a dad. When they're outside the Jerusalem Golden Gate, they're on this little bridge going into the city. And what's fantastic is the way she's holding his head. I mean, this is Giotto. This is, what, 1305? So early in the story of the Renaissance. And yet, you know, she's got one hand at the back of his head, another hand on his cheek, and she's literally pulling him towards her to, to kiss him with this wonderful kiss that you can just imagine um, an, an older couple um, planting on each other. So again, you know, tenderness is my thing. You know, I'm a soppy guy. I love this picture for that. And I think this is really the first kiss between a man and a woman in art. I can't think of an earlier one in, in certainly in Western art. I mean, of course, you've got all that stuff going on on Greek vases and that, but I mean, that's a, of a different order. So, yeah, I love it. I think I love the tenderness and I love the way she holds his head and pulls him towards her. It's gorgeous. A very fine picture and um, wonderfully depicted scene by Giotto. Uh, yes, I mean, it, it's so interesting, isn't it, when you see how advanced Giotto was. And then you, you mentioned briefly the kisses on all those, you know, Greek and Roman vases. And you think, goodness, that was even more advanced, wasn't it? And and they were dealing with such a more uh, complex and um, different subject matter. But but anyway, uh, Giotto did what he did, and it's a fine picture. And uh, we, we've we've strayed quite some way from our original brief to be about sentimental Valentine's Day kissy paintings. And my final choice, Valdi, I've gone completely off the deep end um, because I've chosen Narcissus by Caravaggio. Now, Valentine's Day is you know, it's, it's, a, it's a day for couples to celebrate their love around the world. It's a day for us to celebrate our love around the world. But I just thought it was time for a shout out 
for all the lonely narcissists out there who just want to gaze at themselves and send themselves a Valentine's Day card because there are so many people uh, like that, aren't there? Now, uh, this painting, I think this is the best depiction of Narcissus in art. It's a wonderful painting by Caravaggio. It's in the National Gallery of Art in Rome, painted in the late 1590s, they think. And uh, being a Caravaggio, of course, it's all dark and moody and the light is coming in from one direction on the side. And a beautiful young page boy is, is stooped low over a very still pond and he's gazing at his reflection and it seemed to me that he was he was bending down to kiss himself so that's why i've i've shoehorned it into our selection here caravaggio has managed to make it rather a tender scene and of course it was a subject matter that was painted a lot at the time of the renaissance um because various people uh, including uh, people like alberti the renaissance theorist actually claimed that uh, narcissus was the inventor of painting because he says that uh, all art stems from that image of man gazing at his reflection in the water. When you said this to me, I thought to myself, that's not a kiss. Nobody's kissing anybody else. Self-love, um, I can see why it's your speciality, Benjor. <laughs> um, and I can see 100% why you might have picked this. Uh, of course, it's a fantastic picture. I mean, no arguments there. It's a weird composition, isn't it? I mean, I, I've seen it lots of times, and it, it's as if the figure has been flattened somehow or shaped or bent to fit into the shape of the rectangle that the picture is. It's a very unnatural pose. He's got both his hands on either side and um, and his back arched over where the top of the picture is. And it's set at night, isn't it? So it's all moody. And Narcissus himself, as it were, with his hands outstretched and his head crouched down, and the reflection in the water, which is the same scene, but a little bit more blurry, forms a kind of circle, doesn't it? So you, you could half close your eyes. This would be like a um, moon or a sky against the black night, uh, because it's all circular shape in this rectangle. So it, it, compositionally fascinating. Listen, what can I say? Caravaggio, no one's going to argue with you about that. Narcissus, great treatment of the picture. Um, it's a fabulous painting. I'd love to have it. Um, I, I don't think it's actually a kiss as such, but hey, who sticks by the rules on this podcast? So well done. I mean, it's exciting. I love it. Can I go on to my uh, my last one, Bendy? Mm. I've gone for Picasso. Um, you know, I love Picasso. I know you've got your issues with that, but I mean, everybody's got a weakness. Um, that's yours. Uh, I love this picture. Uh, let me just describe it to you. It's basically a scene of two blobs, one of which I think is pretty obviously a feminine blob. The other blob is obviously a masculine blob. The two blobs are on a beach, simplified by Picasso into just an expanse of yellow, um, with a sea beyond, simplified by Picasso into an expanse of blue. And there are at it like the clappers. I mean, they make Jericho look like, you know, someone who, who belongs in a monastery or a convent. I mean, this is passion of the fiercest order. Um, and at the center of it is this kiss where the two blobs meet face to face or blobby face to blobby face. And right at the middle of it are their tongues, which are clashing like a fencing contest in the middle of the picture. So it's, no-nonsense depiction of two people at it, right? It struck me immediately, first of all, because um, it's such a dramatic image and such a compellingly powerful image of unleashed sexuality, about which you know a lot, Bendor. But then something else struck me about it. I, I happened to be reading the label, and on the label it told me that the picture's called uh, Figures on a Beach, painted the 12th of January, 1931. 
Now, I wasn't born in 1931, but I was born on the 12th of January. So, Bendor, this picture, the moment I saw it, all I could think of was, my God, is this what my parents got up to to have me? It was beyond shocking. I tell you, I mean, you know how you never, ever want to imagine your parents or indeed anybody before you came along doing these kinds of things, right? You see this in art. You're confronted by this with your birthday on it. It shocked the life out of me. Um, and I've never been able to look at it without basically shuddering, but at the same time feeling part of it, part of this great cosmos of love and art and sexual attraction that we sit in. So for me, it's it's genuinely a picture that's kind of moved and changed my life. Well, the, if your parents, out of that moment of tenderness and love, produced something as beautiful, wonderful as you, then I think uh, you should never feel ashamed about what happened and what your parents got up to because it was a, it was a beautiful moment a defining moment i don't like this painting as much as you do it seems to me that they're not going at it it, it feels to me like picasso's devouring or you know the male is devouring um, the female here it looks like a sort of they're devouring each other now come on come be fair they're, they're, mm. they're each at it in the same way aren't they surely well, I, you know, and then I had a look at some other uh, Picasso kisses and, and they're also, you know, like a, a beast, a bull devouring some poor cow. But anyway, you, you, you're a Picasso fan and I'm not. Um, I don't think it's a very tender picture, but we need to appeal to a final authority as to which of our uh, selections of kisses in art history is actually the most appropriate for a Valentine's Day programme. So uh, are we going to um, bring in uh, producer Tear at this point and, and give us her view? Portea, yeah. So, so we're dragging in Portea to look at these um, outrageous scenes of love and kissing. Um, okay, Taya, um, we've managed to keep you off this podcast pretty much until now, but I mean, we do need <laughs> someone here to give us a thumbs up or a thumbs down. You've heard Bendor with his self-love. You've heard me with my tender romantic vision of it. Who's the winner out of all these pictures of love and kissing? Well, they are all fabulous pictures, and I've thoroughly enjoyed um, hearing the story behind them. But I must admit that I will have to go with the Toulouse-Lautrec one, which I did actually pick before I heard the descriptions of any of the paintings, just because, I don't know, it just has that romantic feeling, and it makes me want to have long, lazy weekends in bed with my husband. So, appropriate for Valentine's Day, I'd say. Yeah, oh, you see, Taya, that, that's that's why you're such a wonderful person. So you're not just the best producer ever. You've got such great <laughs> taste. And I have to say, and I totally agree with you. So there you go, Bendy. Taya's gone for two of the track. To be honest, I have to say, I think they're all really good. Um, and isn't it wonderful that love and kissing has inspired so much uh, great art? Yeah. A very, very good choice. I absolutely agree with you. Uh, it's a wonderful picture. And of course, it, um, to show love and tenderness in painting, after having two old farts like us talk about it, it needs a picture of two women kissing to show us what it's really all about. Yeah, that's absolutely right. So there you go. The art of love, according to Waldy, Bendy and Taya. And as you know, Bendy, um, Shakespeare's already told you, hasn't he, that the course of love never did run smooth. So um in this podcast, nothing runs smooth. And we've, uh, having ascended to the sublime with Taya and her wonderful choice, uh, we can now plummet in true Waldy and Bendy fashion to the ridiculous. Because you and I, Bendy, we have an appointment with disaster.
Oh dear, the Waldy and Bendy Awards. And the disaster is, Bendy, that you have forced me to watch some of the worst films ever made about art. We've been at it for, what, five weeks now? Uh, and thank God it'll soon be over, because I think this is the last one, isn't it? <sighs> it's called The Rebel. It stars Tony Hancock as The Rebel. Uh, it was written by Galton and Simpson, better known perhaps for Steptoe and Son, uh, it was released to lots of acclaim in 1961. So the rebel, Bendor, what's in it and what did you think of it? Well, uh, just to take you up on what you said a moment ago, the record will show out is that this was your idea. And I <laughs> did protest in vain to have some good films in our list. But anyway, you insisted on, on choosing the worst. And this actually, this week's suggestion was recommended by a number of our listeners. And it was I on can, Twitter, wasn't it? Yeah, mm. I can only assume that they were very gently trying to get us to to stop talking about art films, <laughs> and so this this section of the podcast would never come back because they've clearly excelled themselves by picking what I think is by far and away the most terrible film about art ever made. It's absolutely <laughs> awful. I was reading on Wikipedia that uh, apparently Lucian Freud uh, said it was the best film about modern art ever made, which only proves that he, he was either, he loved terrible films or he had a great sense of humour. Shall I just quickly summarise what the film is about? It's Tony Hancock is an office worker in the 1960s. He has a crisis of confidence and wants to become an artist, but he's a really terrible artist. And somehow he makes it by uh, stealing the work of another person. Uh, and in the process, we get all sorts of jibes about uh, what modern art is. So we see, for example, Tony Hancock painting what he calls an action painting, which is basically he throws paint along a huge canvas on the floor. It's clearly a, a ripoff of a Jackson Pollock. It's the sort of film that would have had Sir Alfred Munnings rolling in the aisles. He, of course, was the famous British painter who was president of the Royal Academy and who in 1949 made a, a, a famous speech say, decrying modern art, saying, well, a tree is supposed to look like a tree. And if I saw Picasso in the street, I would uh, kick him up the backside and say, now come along. And the film is basically an hour and a half of, of every tired old gag against modern art you could think of. Um, and uh, and it's just it has nothing it has no redeeming features whatsoever. I pretty much agree with you there. I mean, the saddest thing about it is that it is that old British idea of isn't all modern art stupid and aren't all foreigners stupid? Um, and look at what these idiots are up to, and it's the emperor's new clothes and all this other stuff, which I have to say, I still get re regularly sent to me uh, both at the Sunday Times in my letters pages. Uh, but also on Twitter, you know, people are still looking at art this way as if it's some giant con being perpetrated on everybody by a bunch of clowns who've managed to fool everybody. And that that's amazing how persistent that idea is. In this film, it's given its head uh, and more. It's basically from start to finish an assault on foreigners and their love for modern art. That's basically what it is. And it gives Hancock plenty of chance to be ridiculous to send up every modern art movement going there's lots of times when he encounters weird people look aren't they weird like these sort of beatniks and these existentialists and there's a mocking hancocky tone to all of it which is very upsetting and it's, it's just difficult to watch because I mean, everybody knows there's plenty of bad art being made all the time. There always has been, you know, there's no great secret to that. But this idea that all modern art is like that is offensive, frankly. A couple of things 
I wouldn't call them redeeming features, but a couple of things are worth considering more, perhaps. One is that um, the actual bad art in the film, you know, the stuff that he actually paints or is presented by him as the, the rebels artworks were all done by this guy called Alistair Grant, who used to be the head of painting at the Royal College of Art. And I know about him because he taught my wife. My wife's a painter and Alistair Grant was her tutor. And um, he put on a show indeed of work by some of his pupils and he put her work in it. So that was very exciting. Mm -hmm. But well, actually quite subtly, but I think noticeably, the stuff that Tony Hancock paints as the rebel, the really bad stuff that is all pure him, is then countered later in the film by the stuff that someone who's copying him, but who's actually a rather good artist, his friend Paul paints, and everybody says, oh, isn't that brilliant? So there's supposed to be a difference, as it were, in badness between the Tony Hancock stuff and the copying stuff. And I have to say, as an art critic, that I could see a slight difference. So if you look at the second exhibition, the stuff with the good, bad stuff in it, which is all painted by Alistair Grant, I mean, you can see these rather subtle and, and possibly rather clever reflections upon contemporary art. So the thing that looks just like a Victor Passmore painting, and it, it absolutely is obviously meant to be a bit of an in-joke. So that was just good, just watching Alistair Grant in action and watching these bad paintings happen. And I also think it's true to say that some of that idea that curators and art critics go down to Monte Carlo and then they swan about on yachts and rich collectors invite them over and feed them and drink them and that these artists get a bit corrupt and they all turn up in their dirty clothes and sit there surrounded by rich people clinking their jewellery. I mean, I have seen that sort of stuff go on. That does actually go on. It is rather interesting that when artists get invited to posh events, they inevitably dress down and turn up in their bohemian best. And there is this sense that everybody sits around listening to the words of wisdom from the idiot savant. Mm. Here and there, there's the odd odd pebble of, 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 of truth here. But um, basically, it's, it's, yes, it's an hour and a half of giggling jokes about modern art. Terrible. I, I didn't even raise a titter from me for, for a second. I thought the best thing in it was actually, a, I think, an uncredited appearance by a young Oliver Reed, who was there as one of uh, Tony Hancock's sort of <laughs> artistic acolytes at the very beginning, looking beautiful and very charismatic. Um, but I'm, the reason I'm actually pleased that we've, we've ended on this film is uh, we must do our scores in a moment. But for me, it's beyond doubt the very worst film that art ever made. And, and I think it deserves that title because it tried to look at art and just mock it. It didn't like, it, it, this film doesn't like art. The people in it and who made it don't like art. Whereas all the other films we've been talking about, they may have been bad films. They may have misfired every now and then, but they're, they're passion projects. They're born out of a love of the art or the artist's concerns. So uh, we've been a little bit unkind about them, of course. But I think for me, this this will be a just winner if if it comes and wins the Wendy. Well, this is it. Listen, I have now got all the scores. I've put in my scores for the six films that we've watched because you foolishly made us watch two Van Gogh films, if you remember. We were going to do five, but we're now doing six. Taya sent in her scores. I can unpack the envelope, <laughs> open the envelope, pull out the golden list, and here it is. Da -da 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 -da. So from the bottom, as it were, which is to say the least worst film first. Mm -hmm. I've had trouble with the maths here, Bendor. It's not, it's not my strong point, I'll be honest with you. Um, but I've somehow or other, <laughs> I think I've cobbled some scores together. So what I think we've arrived at is a list. Okay, and here we go. 
So the least worst film about an artist ever made, which okay. is to say the one that we've actually sort of liked most. Okay. That is actually Lust for Life, oh, which wow. has got decent points from you, from Taya, from me. And that's Kirk Douglas as Van Gogh and Anthony Quinn as Gauguin. Okay. The second least worst film uh, of all time about an artist, which is to say the one we liked a bit as well, that's The Agony and the Ecstasy, oh, good. story of nice Michelangelo thing. with Charlton Heston. Good, yeah. The third least worst film of an artist ever made, which some of us liked a little bit, not me, but others have, and that's the film about Frida Kahlo. Frida, starring Salma Hayek as uh, Frida Kahlo and Alfred Molina as Diego Rivera. And uh, we're getting now to the genuinely bad baddies. So at number three is At Eternity's Gate, oh. the Julian Schnabel film, which you, Bendor, forced us to watch. Nice which movie. I must say, I would have had much, much higher up the list than this. Um, but you seem to have rescued it single-handedly by giving it a massive score. At Eternity's Gate, that's the third worst film about an artist ever made. And the, uh, I'm getting there, the second, oh dear me, the second worst film about an artist ever made. And this will have me and you um, regurgitating our opinions pretty quickly, Bendor is The Rebel with Tony Hancock. I mean, that can only mean one thing. Oh. Taya must have piled on the points for The oh, Rebel. She, oh, dear me, I'll have to have a word with that young lady later on. We um, earlier in the podcast, you had such wonderful taste, and now oh, no, you've shattered she, our illusion. She was so good for a while, <laughs> wasn't she? But it does at least mean that we can, with some certainty and some unanimity, announce to the world, which is, of course, waiting expectantly, Da -da 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 -da. The worst film about an artist ever made, according to this scientific examination by the Waldy and Bendy team, plus Taya, the worst film about an artist ever made is Pollock. Oh. <laughs> Pollock, about Jackson Pollock, starring Ed Harris, written by Ed Harris, with dirty T-shirts by Ed Harris. And directed by Ed Harris, too. And directed yeah. by Ed Harris. Kingsley. Everything about it is Ed. Cheekbones by Ed Harris, right? Yeah. It's a worthy winner-loser, don't you think, Bendor? I think, unfortunately, they all tried very hard, but we agree that it's a stinker. And uh, having done this examination, well, what, what is our advice for anyone thinking of making a film about art or an artist, I suppose, oh, our advice is? That's simple. Don't. don't. There's no such thing as a good film about an artist. It's impossible to do. Yeah. Hollywood, if you're listening, and I know Steve Martin is, because he's a big fan of yours, isn't he? Steve Martin, tell everybody else in Hollywood <laughs> that Waldy and Bendy are begging you not to have any more films by anybody about any artists. Paris. And listeners, if you want to see art or the life of an artist, go to a museum. There you go. Thankfully, that's over. Thank God, five weeks of my life wasted watching <laughs> that sort of stuff. Um, now, fortunately, we're able to move on now, Bendor, because it's the part of the podcast that gives us some joy at last. On the Wall. Oh, Bendel, thank God, on the wall. Come on, quickly, get me out of my agony. What, what have you chosen? Cheer me up quickly. Well, actually, I've gone for on the shelf this time because um, we, we've been assembling a, a fantasy gallery, and this time I've selected a document, not a painting. And it is a document of the greatest art sale there ever was. And this was the dispersal after his execution in 1649 of the collection of Charles I, King of England and Scotland. 
at one of the greatest collections ever assembled. And of course, the Cromwellian regime, after they cut off the king's head, looked at his art and thought, well, we need some cash. So we'll have a yard sale, they call them in America. It, a lot of people think it was an auction, but actually it wasn't. And the document I've chosen is in the National Archives, and it's a rather beautifully assembled and written list of all the paintings the king had and all the paintings the queen had and, and everything, all their little trinkets, all their gold stuff and jewellery and little nifty miniatures and boxes and all sorts of things, and it all went up for sale. And And I want this on my wall because I think it's going to be... I love fantasy shopping. I love window shopping. And, uh, and I think if I had this list in front of me, I could pretend that I was at that sale, the greatest art sale there ever was. And I could have the shopping list in front of me. And the way they organized the, the sale was that it was basically a catalog with a price. And you could go along and, and if you wanted that petition for £600, uh, you could have it. Um, and the extraordinary thing was it, it didn't really sell well. Uh, they had to have a few sale events. It was a bit like DFS, the sale that never ended. Um, and there were so few takers that for uh, many of the creditors at the time, the king's creditors, including people like the royal plumber, uh, rather than give them the cash because they couldn't sell the pictures, they, they ended up giving the royal plumber all sorts of things like, you know, Titians and Veronese's and so on. Yeah. So I'm going to have this on my lap and I'm going to pretend I was there uh, hoovering up all these amazing bargains. Well, you'll certainly get some good pictures there then. I mean, you can fantasise about a lot of stuff. I mean, when you think of what was in Britain before the Cromwellians sold it off in that sale, I mean, it just makes my heart weep. It really does. I mean, how many Titians were there? I mean, there were, there were what, 20? They're all in the Prado now, aren't they? They're all those great yeah. Titians like yeah. the Venus and the Musician and, oh, dear me. I mean, that was such a horrific act of barbarism, getting rid of all that stuff. I mean, I suppose we should still count ourselves very lucky that we've got enormous art treasures in this country. Um, you know, but blimey, what, what more there could have been had all that stuff stayed behind? Mm. Yeah, I suppose, you know, just for balance, I suppose we have to say that, uh, according to the people who sold it at the time, this was art. Uh, lavishly bought by a king with money that he didn't have and which he pilfered from the people. So, you know, they thought, well, we'll have it back, please. And why not? Yeah, and see, that's, uh, let's go back to the rebel, if I may, for a moment. You know, that sort of attitude, that <laughs> resistance to art, is it's hardwired into the British psyche, isn't it? There's just this thing that people are just suspicious of art, full stop, you know. And they were way back, even before poor old Charles I, had his head cut off for, amongst other things, the terrible crime of being an art-loving monarch. Oh, <laughs> uh, dear. It saddens me, to be honest, Ben Vore. It saddens me. Well, what have you chosen? Well, fortunately, there were good things in the Times as well. And um, I've done something sneaky. I think it's sneaky. Um, I've chosen a Van Dyke. I thought, fight fire with fire, fight Bendor with a Benderism. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I've gone for a Van Dyke portrait that I've always loved since I saw it. I saw it, it was on loan at an exhibition once in the Dulwich Picture Gallery, where, uh, so it's a Van Dyke, right? But it was hanging near a William Dobson painting. William Dobson, as you know, is my guy from early in the 17th century, uh, the court painter of Charles I, 
loved Dobson. And there's a picture in the Dulwich Picture Gallery that is always said to be by Dobson, even though I think you and I know it isn't. And that's a portrait of the poet Richard Lovelace, mm -hmm. right? great poet who wrote, stone walls do not a prison make nor iron bars a cage. This lovely ringleted cavalier portrait of Richard Lovelace. And so for a while at Dulwich Picture Gallery, they put up another portrait of a great poet of the times, but this time by Van Dyke. And that's the picture I've chosen for us here. It's a portrait of Sir John Suckling. Now, Sir John Suckling was one of these metaphysical poets, they were called. These great poets of the era who used English language in a new way, who wrote usually about love. And that's, of course, why I've chosen it to continue our theme for our Valentine's Day special. And I'm just going to read a quick poem by Sir Richard Lovelace before we get down to describing the picture. You should know the quality of the writing of the man we're, we're talking about here. And this is um, a poem he wrote called Why So Pale and Wan? Why so pale and wan, fond lover? Prithee, why so pale? Will, when looking well, can't move her, looking ill prevail? Prithee, why so pale? Why so dull and mute, young sinner? Prithee, why so mute? Will, when speaking well, can't win her, saying nothing do it? Prithee, why so mute? Quit, quit for shame. This will not move, this cannot take her. If of herself she will not love, nothing can make her. The devil take her. So basically, it's a poem about however much you fancy somebody, however big the crushes that you have on her, whatever you do, however many flowers you send her, however much romance you express her or him, indeed, indeed, him, whatever the situation, if you're the person in a relationship who's doing all the heavy lifting, as it were, and they're not interested, I'm afraid they'll never be interested. And I pick that poem because I've been in that situation often where, you know, my love has been batted back at me. Oh. Um, and I just think it's one of the things you need to learn in life. And if you can't learn it on Valentine's Day, then when can you learn it? Don't you think, Bendor? Well, that's a, that's a cheery thought. Well, I can't bear the thought of anybody uh, rejecting you. You read the poem beautifully. Actually, when you were talking about all sorts of things going mute, it's, that's what I say when your Zoom connection freezes on me. I mutter poetry saying, where is thy Waldy? Why have you gone mute on me? But this is a fine painting. One of Van Dyke's greatest full-length English period portraits. I'm very glad you've chosen it. It belongs to the Frick, and it shows to me why Van Dyke was so good, why he, he transformed British art, because here is Sir John Suckling. He's basically standing still next to a rock, holding a book he's contemplating, but yet Van Dyke seems to make him move. So even someone in that contemplative static state in Van Dyke's brush can seem to have movement and life, as well as character and likeness, and what an astonishing achievement that was. He's so handsome, isn't he, with his long hair and his sash of deep red around his shoulders. And he's so tall and so elegant. And as you say, he's holding a book. Do you know what the book is? Uh, it's a folio of uh, Shakespeare, I believe. That's right. It's Shakespeare's first folio. And see, that's a radical thing. By holding up this book, Sir John Suckling is announcing that he will love Shakespeare ahead of the classics. He's taking, as it were, modern poetry and modern literature to be something that should be appraised and admired um, rather than the poetry and literature of the ancients. And so on a rock at the bottom of the picture, inscribed in the rock, are the words... Nete questioneris extra, which is Latin, as you know, Bendy, because you know everything about all the languages. It's Latin for 
do not seek outside yourself. So that's another lesson of life, really. Don't look for things out there. You can only find them inside you. And I think that's true not only of, of love. I mean, it's true of art. It's true of everything, isn't it? Uh, yes. That takes us back to Caravaggio's Narcissus, I suppose. But anyway. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's certainly true of this podcast. Do not look outside this podcast <laughs> unless you actually want to hear something sensible and cogent and meaningful and worthwhile. In which case, yeah, yeah. Listen to anything but this terrible blundering podcast um at which point i think it's quite enough from me so that's a goodbye from this end of the tragedy and cheerio from this end Waldy and bendy, bendy.